Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And this is the tech news for Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. And one story that I haven't really covered on this podcast is that there is a global semiconductor shortage, and that has a cascading effect on the computer and electronics industries and beyond. So let's dive into that really quickly. Now, it mostly comes down to a couple of big things that happened in 2020, and one of those is, of course, the pandemic. The global shutdown of various industries disrupted supply chains, and that meant that shortages in raw materials became an issue really quickly. It just had this you know, ripple effect. And it's not like the whole world went on pause at the same time. And it certainly isn't like they all started up again in synchronization along with everyone else. So in a way, this kind of led to the supply chain version of a traffic jam, except instead of cars going through, you know, stop and start traffic because of some other event that happened further down the road, you have various manufacturers who found themselves waiting on other elements in the supply chain And thus, they had to go idle because they didn't have the stuff they needed to do their part in the chain. Everything got mucked up. Related to that, the silicon used to create the vials to hold vaccines is the same stuff that's used in semiconductors. And, you know, because the vaccines are understandably a very high priority, it meant the semiconductor industry experienced a silicon shortage and thus the price for silicon went up. Now, when the price for materials goes up, you get one of two outcomes. Either the companies that are making stuff out of that raw material have to increase prices, or they experience a smaller profit margin. Either way, the squeeze is felt further up the chain. But the other big issue on top of that is that the demand for semiconductors grew a lot in 2020 by nearly 7%. More of our everyday tech relies on semiconductors, everything from, you know, video game consoles to automobiles. Now, because of the shortage of semiconductors, everything else down the line gets held up too. And this is likely to lead to massive losses in several industries. Automakers are probably going to be losing billions of dollars in the short term because Semiconductors are important components for nearly every system inside a car. Like, there's more than 50 of them. And that includes everything from entertainment to brakes to steering. Pat Gelsinger, the new CEO of Intel, warns that this could just be the start of a shortage and that we could see the effects of the shortage stretch on several years. Gelsinger has said that, The semiconductor industry has reacted quickly to near-term challenges, but that the long-term effects are still a big concern. Meanwhile, on the consumer side, we're seeing the effects of this crisis. The laptop maker Acer has said that due to this semiconductor shortage, the company is only able to fill half of worldwide demand for laptop production on any given day. So what this means for all of us, you know, you and me, is that the supply for all sorts of tech, from smartphones to computers to cars, 
is going to be more limited than what we've come to expect, at least for the near term. And demand is likely to be high. So when you've got high demand and you've got limited supply, the next thing you typically see is prices go up. So get ready to spend more money to buy your tech over the next year or two until things shake out. And while we get ready to pay out more money, The Guardian reports that the Silicon 6 have actually paid out less than they claimed. The Silicon 6 refers to six gargantuan tech companies. That would be Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Netflix, which interestingly uh, is the first time I've seen Netflix added to this particular list. Totally makes sense, though. And according to The Guardian, these six companies overstated their tax payments by nearly $100 billion over the last 10 years. A report from the Fair Tax Foundation claims that these six companies paid $96 billion less in tax between 2011 and 2020 than their annual reports indicate. Moreover, these six companies paid a tax rate that you or I would go bonkers over. According to Fair Tax Foundation, these companies paid out 3.6% of their total revenue in tax. That's $219 billion of taxes. And yeah, that is an astounding amount of money, $219 billion. But let's compare that to the amount of revenue they generated, which was more than $6 trillion dollars. Trillion. That goes beyond a princely sum. Now, let's be fair. That is revenue. That is not profit, right? Like, profit is what you get after you remove all the costs from the money that you've brought in. So, luckily, The Guardian digs down into that a little bit as well. Over that decade, you know, the last 10 years, Amazon collected around 1.6 trillion dollars in revenue, but collected a mere 60.5 billion dollars in profits. So, I mean, I'm being a little flippant because honestly, these numbers are so big, I can't actually comprehend them. Like from an abstract perspective, I kind of get it. But, you know, if I try to dive any further down, it's just too big. But you see that the the amount of, of profit compared to revenue is very, very tiny when you look at them in ratio, right? Not by sheer amount. $60 billion is a huge amount of money. Anyway, The Guardian reports that Amazon ended up paying well below what it should have been expected to pay, almost half as much, in fact. There's a shifting movement around the world to apply new tax laws that would limit companies from being able to to put profits over into tax havens. Whether that actually happens or not, whether countries around the world really act on this, uh, that remains to be seen because I'm sure there will be more than a few dollars spent on lobbying to oppose those measures. So we'll have to see how this develops further. Okay, but what if money is no object to you? What if you are swimming in the stuff, you know, Scrooge McDuck style? How do you flaunt your wealth in a way that's both flashy and environmentally friendly. Well, my friend, maybe it's time you look into The Silent Shadow, a luxury electric vehicle concept in the works over at Rolls-Royce. 
Now, the brand Rolls-Royce has long been associated with luxury and opulence, and the word shadow has significance for the company, because back in 1965, Rolls-Royce introduced the Silver Shadow luxury car. When it comes to the Silent Shadow, well, we don't really have that many details about the car. The company says that the plans are to have the vehicle ready for purchase within the decade. But we don't know any specs. We don't know what the projected price is. Although, you know, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Uh, we don't know really any real details. Except that, of course, you know, Silent Shadow, the name, tells us that we know it's going to be very, very quiet. But then again, Rolls-Royce is known, at least in part, for engineering cars that operate quietly. Because the whole point of a Rolls-Royce is that the experience of driving it, or for those who prefer to employ a driver, the experience of riding in a Rolls-Royce is to enjoy luxury rather than that, you know, chassis shaking engine revving experience you get with like muscle cars. Rolls-Royce isn't the only luxury car maker that's diving into electric vehicles. And as I've reported in previous episodes of Tech Stuff, that's pretty much a necessity because a lot of places around the world intend to phase out the sale of new fossil fuel powered vehicles over the next decade and a half. Earlier this year, I talked about how the electronics company LG was exiting the smartphone industry. The company had shown off a couple of interesting concepts at CES, but it sounds like they're never going to hit store shelves. So that magical expanding smartphone is just going to be a, a thing of legend. I think we're not at least we're not going to see it from LG. Now, Korea BizWire reports that LG is switching its former smartphone manufacturing facilities over to make home appliances instead. Uh, the company is also consolidating its operations in Brazil, expanding facilities in the city of Manaus. And uh, I apologize for the terrible mispronunciation of that. I am certain I got it completely wrong. While LG pulled the plug on smartphones after finding the market too competitive, uh, it was dominated by companies like Apple and Samsung, Home appliances are a totally different story. One of the many consequences of the pandemic of 2020, I, mean, I guess I shouldn't give it a year, it's still going. Anyway, one of the big consequences was this increased demand in home appliances as people spent more time at home, and LG saw its sales skyrocket as a result. Now, this move reflects that increased demand was really the driver for LG's decisions. However, it will remain to be seen if that demand will continue, right? If the demands that were generated by the pandemic in 2020 are going to stick around even as we start to have a better handle on dealing with the consequences of that pandemic. So we don't really know if this is the start of a trend in home appliance sales or if it's more of a blip in the radar. CNET reports that some recently unsealed court documents show that Google purposefully obfuscated the location settings in its Android phone software so that it would be harder for users to find those settings and then turn them off. As we've seen with numerous tech companies, including one we're going to cover in a second, the real business of those companies uh, aren't necessarily in hardware. 
or social networking sites or whatever the surface level business is. You know, Google's business isn't really search. It's in data. That's where the real money is, collecting and then exploiting data in different ways. Uh, primarily when it comes to user data, that comes in the form of the company's relationships with various advertisers. You know, obviously, the more information you can give an advertiser about their intended market, the more effectively that advertiser can serve up ads to that market. So it becomes this, this cycle, this feedback loop between these companies and advertisers that in turn inform the business decisions of those companies like Google. So according to this document, Google discovered that if the location settings on an Android phone were relatively easy to navigate to, a lot of people opted to turn off their location settings. How about that? Folks are not super jazzed about being tracked everywhere. And so Google's solution to this issue was not to shift business operations away from the benefits of harvesting location data. No, the answer, apparently, was to make those settings just way harder to find so that users would continue to generate those geolocated zeros and ones for Google so that Google could profit off of them without those users actually really being aware of it. On top of that, Google apparently reached out to various manufacturers that make Android products in an effort to convince them to hide the location settings away in deep various menus and clunky user interfaces like LG pushed geolocation settings to the second page of settings in its phones. And anyone who's had any experience on the internet knows that if you are below the fold, that is, if you have to scroll down in order to see a particular entry, you lose like the vast majority of people who are looking at your stuff. Like this is clear in Google search, right? If you're not in those first few hits of a Google search, the traffic that comes to you thanks to Google search is super low because you know most people don't bother to scroll down any further. Same's true with settings on phones. If it's not right there, a lot of people don't take the effort to go any further. This revelation comes on the heels of an investigation from three years ago by the Associated Press into Google, and that investigation found that Google was tracking location even if users opted out of the location history feature. So, Apparently, if you turned off location history on your Android device, it just meant that Google was going to keep on tracking you everywhere you go. They just wouldn't tell you about it. I mean, why should you care about all this anyway? Why, why is this important? Well, location data isn't just about collecting information on where you go and when you go there. It's also about collecting the data of everybody else at the same time. Anyone who has, you know, a, a device that has geolocation connected to it. If you're in a space that has a lot of folks with phones in it, well now, as a data collection company, you can do all sorts of interesting things. So I'm going to give you an example, and this is actually something that's related to a Twitter thread I saw and I wish I could remember the person who posted it because it was very good, but I'll give you kind of a, a, an example. So let's say that you've got a good friend of yours you haven't seen in a long time, and you go to visit this friend for a few days. So you're staying at your friend's house. 
Now your friend also has various devices and you've got your smartphone and location tracking tells Google where you are. And assuming Google also has at least some access to the data that's generated by your friend's devices, Google also knows who you are with. They know that you're at this specific person's house and they know things about that specific person too. Google knows all about your friend's activities and what they like and where they like to go and all that kind of stuff. So now Google starts to integrate ads into your various experiences that aren't just targeting you. They're also targeting your friend. I mean, you like this person well enough to stay at their house for a few days. Maybe you like them well enough to shop for a birthday present for them. And Google happens to know when their birthday is because that's some of the data that these companies collect, like email addresses, birthdays, a lot of the stuff these companies collect not through directly grabbing it off of your device, but by, you know, cross-referencing the databases that have your information in them from across all the different services you use. So if you've ever used a service where you've had to put in things like your name and address and phone number and your birthday and your email and all that kind of stuff. All that data ends up getting mixed up with information that's gathered from sources like devices. And that's a really powerful thing. So now because Google knows where you are and who you're with, and they know about that person's birthday, maybe they serve up ads about something that this friend of yours really likes and the suggestion is, hey, it's, it's, it's my friend's birthday coming up. I should, you know, click on this ad and buy this stuff. So now you get this weird sensation that you're getting served ads that are very specifically targeted at you and the experiences that you've recently had. It feels like Google is listening in on you, right? Like it's just spying on you and it's picking up stuff from, say, your your phone's microphone or whatever. But no, Google doesn't have to do any of that. Google doesn't have to do any active spying on you. It doesn't have to listen to you. It's just collecting all the data from you and your friend just by being who you are and where you are and then cross-referencing that data with other data sets and then analyzing that data and then acting on it. This is just one way where data collection can become intrusive and creepy. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll give another update about another company that's equally obsessed with your information. It rhymes with a space look. But first, let's take a quick break. Okay, we're back, and before the break I was telling you about Google and geolocation data and how the company was apparently trying to hide the settings for geolocation away so that fewer people would turn it off. I mean, that's the thing. These companies are often compelled by various legislations around the world to offer up that solution, but then the companies do their best to make that option, you know, harder to find so that fewer people actually use it because it's it's we've seen when people are given the option they often like to opt out of these features then when your entire business is dependent upon those features that's where you see these companies coming up with these clever ways to try and get around the issue so along that same vein remember how facebook 
put up a fuss about the new privacy settings that are included in the latest version of Apple's iOS. So one of the new features of the iPhone operating system, well, really the iOS operating system, because it's for all sorts of devices, not just the iPhone. Anyway, one of the new features is that users will get a prompt asking if they will allow certain apps like Facebook, for example, to collect data about themselves outside of the app itself. So that includes data that comes from other apps that are on your phone. So for example, Facebook, if you were to allow this option, would potentially be allowed to collect information about your shopping habits on other apps or what restaurants you like to order from whenever you use delivery services and so on. Now, because of Apple's change in policy, users will get a message asking them to grant permission to allow apps like Facebook to do this. And Facebook really hates that. And the reason the company really hates it is pretty much the same reason that Google was burying location settings, because data is money. And if you give people the option to share less data about themselves, they might actually take that option. And I mean, really, isn't that just stealing? I mean, when you get down to it, isn't it just ungrateful for users to not hand over all the information about who they are and what they do and who they know so that poor, scrappy companies like Facebook can just make a buck off that info? Now, I'm obviously, I'm being incredibly obnoxious and sarcastic here because I think Facebook is, like, literally the worst. Anyway... Now, a new study suggests that Apple's changes to privacy are, in fact, bad. The study says Apple is doing a bad thing by including these privacy options. It says that those policies only serve to help Apple, and they hurt all other companies. And thus, these are anti-competitive practices that Apple has put in place. Apple is saying, if you want to operate on our system, you must follow these rules, which, by the way, we don't have to follow as Apple. As Apple, we it's cool for us to collect all the information, but you companies out there, you cannot do that. And that this hurts other companies. Also, Facebook totally funded that study. Now that might cause you to question the study's objective perspective, right? Like, the study's outcome is essentially in line with Facebook's complaints against Apple. So I think that's actually a pretty darn healthy attitude to have, to question the objectivity of the results, because the study itself was funded by the company that has a beef against Apple. But all that being said, does that mean it's possible that the paper actually has a point and that Apple is going to benefit while other companies do not? I mean, maybe, it's very likely, Apple is certainly no innocent lamb in this equation either, right? You've got all these different companies that are leveraging data in different ways. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's subtle, but they're all profiting off of it. Now, I don't have a solution that addresses this whole issue unless it's just to give up on smartphones in general and go to like really simple cell phones and and just kind of opt out of the online experience, that's not really an option for most people, or at least not a, you know, a, an attractive option. 
But the flip side is unless there's some specific legislation in place that that directs how data can and cannot be used, I don't see really a way of fixing this. Um, it's a mess. Speaking of messes, in science fiction, autonomous killer robots are a common trope. From Terminator to Robocop to the classic chopping mall, the threat of AI-powered killing machines is made apparent. And we've seen numerous experts in robotics and AI speak out against the development of these kinds of devices. They've pointed out that autonomous weapons would very likely lead to a new type of arms race, and that we would also see horrific uses of this technology. It does not take much imagination to conjure up a scenario in which a machine, all under its own power, mistakenly identifies a group of people as being targets and then attacks them. Or heck, it's not hard to imagine a machine that identifies a group quote-unquote correctly, but the people behind the machine are committed to wiping out specific populations, and they're just using the machines to carry out the awful, horrific work. And according to the UN, we are essentially in that terrifying era. A UN Security Council report said that in March of 2020, the nation of Turkey deployed an STM Kargu 2 military drone. This drone, apparently under autonomous command, attacked Libyan armed forces that were repositioning and withdrawing from an area. The report claims that the drone could identify and attack targets without first establishing any line of communication back to a human operator. The UN had previously warned against this sort of thing, advocating for a global ban on the production of autonomous weaponry. That was a move that was opposed by two major world powers, Russia and the United States. Now, this was back in 2018. The U.S. is in a very different place politically today in 2021. However, I am not confident enough to say that the U.S. would unilaterally condemn the development of these kinds of autonomous weapons. And I say that mostly because the Obama administration had its own serious burden to bear when it comes to the use of lethal military drones, though those were under the control of human operators. Anyway, the report has prompted more experts in the fields of AI and machine learning to speak out against the practice of developing and deploying autonomous weaponry. So it pretty much falls to governments to take action from here and perhaps give the UN the authority to, to have a unilateral ban on the development and thus you know processes in place for any countries found to have violated that ban. Because otherwise, without that kind of global cooperative approach, we're going to see countries say, well, we can't let there be an autonomous weapon gap if we don't pursue it we will be destroyed by these tools because our, our, our opponents will surely go down that pathway. So we have to. And it becomes the sort of escalation that we've seen time and time again. Pretty concerning stuff. We've got another cyber attack story to cover, this time targeting the food industry. A company called JBS Foods had to shut down operations over the weekend due to a cyber attack. JBS Foods is the world's largest producer of beef and poultry, 
and the second largest producer of pork, which surprised me because I, I, I mean, I guess pigs have to be the biggest producer of pork. Haha, <laughs> jokes. Anyway, a cyber attack forced JBS Foods to shut down operations in multiple countries, including the UK, the United States, Australia, Canada, and more. The attack hit the IT systems of the company, and at the time of this recording, I don't have specific details about the nature of that cyber attack. If I had to guess, and again, this is just a guess, I would say it's very likely another ransomware attack, similar to what we saw with Colonial Pipeline earlier this year. If that is the case, then JBS Foods could, in theory, be weighing the option about whether or not to pay off a ransom. If that is the case, I still maintain paying off ransoms is always a bad idea, because it consistently fuels more attacks in the future. The more times hackers get paid off, the more they see that this is you know, profitable, and they'll do it even more. The company is definitely working to restore functionality to its systems, and JBS Foods says that it has no evidence that this attack compromised any data relating to employees, customers, or suppliers, but that processing transactions might take a while because the company has to restore functionality. So we'll keep an eye on this story. And finally, up in space, the International Space Station's robot arm suffered some damage recently. And at first, I was kind of hoping to read about how the ISS got into a, a robot arm wrestling competition with S Sylvester Stallone, and that this was finally my eagerly anticipated sequel to the hit film Over the Top. And, and I think that this one could be called Way Over the Top, and now Stallone is like a space trucker who likes to arm wrestle. But I'm told that none of this is true, and I should just probably not talk about that anymore. But what is true is that the arm did get damaged, and the real reason it got damaged was because of space debris, which is a real issue and a growing one, as we send more stuff up into space and we lack a cohesive uh, approach to getting that stuff down once it ends its, its useful life cycle. It's going to get worse. And uh, when this actually happened is hard to say, but NASA states that the Canadarm2, which has been part of the ISS since 2001, has a puncture in its thermal blanket, so this is essentially like insulation around the arm, and that the boom underneath also suffered some damage. As to when this happened, I'm not actually sure, but the issue of space debris is one that has been growing over the years, without much action on the part of terrestrial governments to create a foundation for rules and processes to mitigate that issue. Or, as Jack Wright Nelson from the National University of Singapore Faculty of Law said to The Register, quote, The hole in Canadarm 2 is minuscule compared to the hole in the international legal regime concerning space debris. End quote. Couldn't have said it better myself, Mr. Nelson. All right. That is it for the news for Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. If you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me on Twitter. The handle we use is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon.
Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.